Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Nat Chang Rinpoche, Chapter 34, Part 1. The old world I'd known was disappearing with relentless rapidity. It's not that I thought my Tsawai Lamas would live forever, but the world seemed different. Emotionally, it was as, as if the Industrial Revolution had just commenced and the world of Jane Austen was beginning to slip away. Ridiculous analogy, but I know of no other way of expressing it. The difference it made to the world to have lost Dujum Rinpoche and Dilgo Kientse Rinpoche is impossible to explain to anyone who had not met them. Chapter 34 the basement of Babel. In 1994, when I had entirely forgotten the desktop fan I'd made for Chimmy Riggs in Rinpoche, I happened to be in McLeod Gange. I was there to attend a conference of Western Buddhist teachers and was accompanied by Shardron, one of our disciples. The conference was an ungainly, cumbersome event in many ways. I found I had little in common with anyone apart from venerable Tanavaro, an Italian Theravadin monk. I found him to be a delightful person and had considerable respect for him as a practitioner. Shardrol also liked him and he told her I see you've been bitten by the Dharma dragon, meaning that she was lost to the ordinary world and was bound for an interesting life. One day I happened to be in Upper Dharmasala, the Indian town below McLeod Gunge. I was looking for robe fabric and for a pair of Chamba mountain sandals to replace the ones that had been stolen at the Buddhist centre some years before. I just checked a shop called Club Footwear in which the words club and foot had been placed so close that the sign read Club Footwear, only in India. I walked on and took note of the familiar sign, please do not allow your children to ease off in the streets and lanes. There were obliquely worded advertisements that read sex and stomach gas doctor. I never inquired further as to the specific expertise of such doctors, so the subject remains a mystery. There were, of course, the ubiquitous Hindi film posters. They usually depicted a beautiful sarid girl being protected by a clean-shaven podgy fellow as a grim-bearded psychopath approached with a knife or axe. As I was smiling at a poster, whom should I see but Gilbert Harris, a South African fellow with whom I'd had some exceedingly unpleasant encounters back in the 70s. I had him more or less diagnosed as having an antisocial personality disorder. I wasn't glib with my analysis, and always figured I could be way off the mark. But hey, it can be useful to know what you're up against with some people. Anyhow, 
Gilbert caught my eye and approached me in what appeared to be a friendly manner. He wore a smile rather than a sneer. This was most unexpected. If I had decided to make use of my past experience, I'd have said hello in passing and left him standing there. I don't warn to sociopaths, even though I try to remember that they too are beginninglessly enlightened. As canonically sanctioned, I bring to mind that whichever sociopath it happens to be, beings such as Gilbert Harris were once my mother in some long distant rebirth. Such a mother had lavished kindness upon me and therefore etc. Such is the perspective of saints, so it's not always easy. On that occasion, however, I was feeling free and something got the better of me. Charles Dickens's book, A Christmas Carol, crossed my mind. The image of the cheerful nephew of Ebenezer Scrooge, who invites his uncle to Christmas dinner, much to the incredulity of all. Anyhow, all that apart, he was down on his luck financially, so I stood him a meal. Why not? It was time to eat in any case. We sat down to a fine Indian repast. He told me where he'd been, Nepal, Sikkim, and he'd been to stay with Chimmy Riggs in Rinpoche in Santinakatan. Jimmy Riggs in had thrown him out for three four reasons best left unexplained. He was indignant and had a list of complaints and accusations. I made no comment. I simply listened and asked questions that were likely to get more interesting answers. What was Jimmy Riggs in shrine room like? Oh, very fine, small, but very fine indeed. He gave some details and concluded with a fascinating tidbit of information. He used to blow incense in my face every day with his desktop fan that he kept on his throne table. Curious. And what was it like, this desktop fan? Oh, some ugly, misshapen, homemade contraption knocked together out of wood and grey plastic. But of what interest is that to you? Just curious, I replied, straining to hide all signs of mirth. <clears throat> he asked me about Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche with great interest, having heard by some means that I'd been to see him at one time. I answered his question so as obliquely as I could. Kunsang Dorje Rinpoche asked me not to mention him to anyone, so I had to be evasive. I think I succeeded, and he accepted that I'd met him, but that there was not much to say. The sneer started to reappear. I'd failed to gain fantastic empowerments, and I was therefore uninteresting. Then, with the meal eaten, we parted ways. I had sponsored his meal and therefore served my purpose. 
He clearly had enough of my spiritually impoverished conversation. I've never been a big one for discussing Buddhism conversationally. My experience of Tibetan Lamas and practitioners was that they talked of their families and everyday concerns, quite like people anywhere. The Western equivalents I met were quite different, apart from a few wonderful exceptions. And so the mention of art or literature, Bach or Bartok, cream or muddy waters, tended to alienate me from most Occidental aspirants. I paid the bill at the restaurant and waved goodbye to Gilbert. Waving goodbye was evidently demo day. It occurred to me as I walked back up the hill to MacLeod Gange that stories have no end in terms of their connection with llamas. As I walked up the hill in the direction of MacLeod Gange, I began to sing. He's Gilbert, the filbert, the nut with a K, the pride of Piccadilly, the blasé roué. Oh, Hades, the ladies who leave their wooden huts for Gilbert, the filbert, the colonel of the nuts. I was staying at the Himalayan Queen Hotel, known locally to Indians by the oblique pronunciation of Himkun and gave the account of my dinner to Chardron. She enjoyed the story and asked what it meant to me. I don't really know, I replied, but I get the feeling that it's a story I'll tell from time to time. I told Jimmy Riggs in Rinpoche this story later and it caused him much amusement. I admitted to him that I was not entirely proud of myself. Seeing my desktop fan as an element in a comic act of vengeance was unworthy for a Buddhist. Jimmy Riggs in Rinpoche simply laughed even more and said, Yeah, maybe, but anyway, too funny. The incense made him cough very much. The conference of Western Buddhist teachers was a strange experience. I'd been alienated back in the 1970s by people whose approach to Buddhism was so unlike my own. Now I was back with the same people, or some of the same people, and alienated again, but for different, entirely different reasons. On the first go-round, I'd encountered romanticised devotionalism, bereft of common sense wishful thinking in turbo drive. In the 1970s, these people were consuming Tibetan cultural superstitions along with Buddhism, as if there were no difference. They were in denial of their Western cultures as having any value. They looked to all Tibetan lamas as if they were possessed of realisation, irrespective of their actual insight. Anyone with a robe was from planet enlightenment and anyone who could not simper on cue was derided as déclassé. In 1994, the reverse was true. The Western Buddhist teachers who'd once been Buddhist students were now gung-ho about Western psychotherapy 
and the value of their own cultures. They were highly concerned with removing the parts of Buddhism they felt were culturally alien to the West, or rather to the new god, psychotherapy. Whatever they didn't like about Buddhism was described as culturally Eastern. They wanted Buddhism stripped of Eastern culture. Most of them were still keen on rebirth and karma because that fits well with New Age ideology. The general understanding of karma, however, tended to be of the Hindu fatalist variety rather than the Buddhist teaching of perceptual patterning. So, from being an outcast on the basis of my failure to have faith in every aspect of the Tibetan cultural worldview, I'd become an outcast on the basis of having no argument with the fundamental tenets of Buddhism. I found no need to alter Buddhism according to the dictates of Western psychotherapy or to add Jungian sand play to the Nyingma curriculum. I had no problem with the role of the Vajra master in Vajrayana on the basis that Vajrayana cannot exist without that role and had no interest in creating laws to govern how a Vajra master should work with disciples. I had prepared a 10 minute dissertation on my work as a Nyingma Lama in the West, including the establishment of the Gurkha Day. The conference committee informed me that there was no time for my presentation. I accepted that as cheerfully as I could, but found later that time was not actually lacking. One Swiss fellow, on hearing the Dalai Lama say that masturbation was not quite the done thing for monastics, decided to be outraged on behalf of certain therapy clients to whom the solitary art was apparently crucial for self-validation. The committee decided that he should be allowed to present his views and he spent half an hour doing so. The Dalai Lama sat patiently listening and agreed that if it was indeed vital to the mental equilibrium of such persons, then indeed it had to be seen as being of value. What was not of value was a 10 minute presentation on the Gurkha Chango Day in the West. The subject of lay and monastic was one of the main themes of our discussions when we were not with the Dalai Lama. I attempted to introduce the idea that these were not the only two options. There was also the Gurkha Chandra Day. Ah yes, they replied, lay tantrikas. No, I responded, the Gurkha Chandra Day are not lay, they are ordained. That's why these robes are worn. As you'll notice, they're similar in form to monastic robes, but of a different colour. To them, ordained was synonymous with celibate, and lay meant non-celibate. I pointed out that the definition of the word lay in all European, Scandinavian, and Eastern European languages meant not of the clergy, 
non-professional. There is no dictionary, to my knowledge, that defines lay as non-celibate. I have researched over 30 languages and multiple English language dictionaries, and so I'm confident that the fact is indisputable. As there is an interest at this conference in separating Dharma from Eastern culture, we could start by accepting that the use of the word lay to mean non-celibate is a cultural concept which has no place in describing the Gurkha Changu day. This was greeted with silence, apart from a few people who were not of the dominant mindset and therefore open to what I had to say. Also, I think we need to accept that this use of the term lay is prejudicial in terms of other religions, such as Judaism and Protestant Christian denominations. It would be aggressive toward those religions were we to employ it, so even without considering the Gurkha Changlo day, it is inappropriate. I had the feeling that I was talking to the wall, apart from venerable Tanavaro. He was a Theravadan monk, but he saw my point entirely. Yes, I agree, it would constitute anti-Semitism to use the word lay as we are doing. At that point, it was deemed that we had come to the conclusion of the discussion and that my points would be borne in mind. The conference then continued to describe the Gurkha Changlo day as lay tantricas, as if nothing had been said. Yeah.